Longest Shortest Time is brought to you by Invitae. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invitae genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invitae.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. There's something about hearing this music that gives me flashbacks. Whenever that Olympics theme comes on the TV, I go straight back to the last Winter Olympics four years ago. I was pregnant. I, I was huge. My due date was, was today, actually, February 19th, um, and it fell smack in the middle of the Olympics. I was living in Philly back then, and, and just like this winter, there was blizzard after blizzard after blizzard, just mountains of snow everywhere. And now I'm um, seeing all this white all over the place and, and just getting a whiff of the frost, plus hearing this. Just puts me right back on my bed, on my hands and knees, leaning my chest on one of those big yoga balls, watching the Olympics and waiting, just waiting for the baby to come. So let me explain that yoga ball thing. Um, so my daughter, Sasha, was facing the wrong way inside of me. Her, her tush was against my back instead of my belly. Sunny side up, they, they call it, um, which I had heard could make labor even more hard and painful than usual. So my midwives told me to hang out on my hands and knees as much as possible um, to sort of like make my belly hang down and create room for the baby to turn. Um, so I took the train home from an appointment where they told me that, waddled my way over the mountains of snow and got in position. And I stayed there for hours with my belly hanging down, praying that she'd turn. I watched everything. The, the skiing, the bobsledding, the snowboarding, the figure skating, the relays. It turns out I really like relays. Um, the hockey. Turns out I don't care much for hockey, but I will watch a whole game anyway when trying to turn a baby. My due date came and went. Luckily, I went into labor just before the Olympics ran out. I was a week late, which is totally normal. You almost never hear a woman say she went into labor on her actual due date. But the due date can hold so much power over us. It's this magical date on our calendars when we think things are supposed to happen. Today, we're going to hear from someone who had something huge happen on her due date, but not at all the thing she'd expected. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. Shannon DiCarlo had a rough pregnancy. At 16 weeks, she's told that her baby is showing possible symptoms of Down syndrome. At 19 weeks, she starts getting contractions. At 28 weeks, she's diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Now, gestational diabetes babies run the risk of being very large. So Shannon gets an ultrasound to monitor the baby's growth. Turns out the baby's actually unusually small. She's under the 10th percentile for her gestational age. It's called intrauterine growth restriction. Shannon gets monitored over the next few weeks. Still no growth. And her amniotic fluid has decreased to the point where they assume the baby has no kidney function. So um, we were told by about 31 weeks that 
this was probably not a baby that we were going to take home. At 32 weeks, two months before Shannon's due date, she's riding the bus to a prenatal checkup, and she feels contractions. These feel stronger than the ones she's had before, and she's certain she's going into labor. And I walked into the office. I said, I'm in labor. And, you know, it was my first time being pregnant. So they said, no, you're not in labor. It's just you're probably just uncomfortable or you're stretching. So they hooked me up to, um, you know, to the machine and they said, oh, yeah, you're in labor (laughs) for sure. My obstetrician said, you know, we're at a point now where this baby may know something we don't know and she wants out. So I think rather than typically the, the treatment at that point is to stop your labor. Um, but we had made a decision together not to stop the labor. Um, so he, I went to the hospital and he had put me on Pitocin, um, which I knew was not going to be a great thing for a baby who's already in distress. Um, as expected, her heart rate, um, went to a very dangerous level. Um, and I think at one point had stopped. So, um, her normal heart rate up until that point, she used to to run in the 160s, which for us sounds fast, but for a fetus is normal. So it was kind of like bum, 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 bum. It sounds like a, a very racing heart rate. So um, it was very loud in the room. So it was that, you know, consistent bum, 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 and then bump, 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 bump bump, bump, you know, that's when sort of the chaos kind of ensued. A nurse runs in, then back out. She pages the OB and the anesthesiologist. You know, it was like kind of like out of the movies. You know, they're throwing a consent form. I'm signing it. We're flying down the hall. Um, And I have a background in operating room nursing. So I know what it means when you get into the room and you know, the scrub tech dumps the tray of <laughs> instruments and just fishes for the, the scalpel um, without organizing. You know, you're, you're in bad shape at that point. Shannon goes in for an emergency C-section. She's already gotten an epidural, which she's happy about because there wouldn't have been time to get one at this point. They would have just had to give her general anesthesia. And, and she wants to be present just in case the worst happens and they lose the baby. The anesthesiologist gives her a numbing agent to dull the pain of surgery because an epidural isn't really enough to cover it. When they ask her if she's completely numb, if she cannot move her legs anymore, she lies. She's, she says she can't, but, but she can. Part of it is she feels so guilty over her body failing her, failing her baby, failing her husband, that in this weird way, she, she wants to feel the pain. She, she wants to feel herself being ripped open. But also, she's just feeling the urgency of getting that baby out of there. I I was a little freaked that they were going to cut into me when I wasn't completely numb. But, you know, the alternative was not something I wanted to even think about. So, Um, But it's amazing what, what your body and your mind will do. I really didn't feel anything until the end, I think, with adrenaline and um you know, I had reached at that point sort of the bargaining stage, which I think you get to, you know, no matter what your beliefs are, if it's God or the universe or what, you're you're bargaining for time at that point. 
I was praying that she just didn't feel anything, you know, that she didn't feel any pain or that. And I had said to to the nurse, um, who was wonderful, I said, listen, if it doesn't look good, just don't pound on her chest for a half hour to please me. Because I've seen that and they don't want to give up. And, And believe me, I don't want them giving up on my child. But realistically, you know, I know what the odds are. And I just didn't want them sort of abusing her body that way if she was already gone. So, you know, in those few seconds here, you're making deals with, you know, with the staff and, you know, with God and, you know, just give me five minutes. Okay, maybe 10. So, um, so you were you were thinking, give me five or 10 minutes with her alive? Yeah, that's what I was hoping for was was five minutes with her where she was aware of me. That's that's what I wanted. Now, you got to picture this. While Shannon is going through this very scary, intimate moment, there are 30 people in the room, literally 30 people. And it's not only the people working on her. The doctor later joked to Shannon that he had to sell tickets to her delivery because not only was she having a preemie, she had a sick baby with medical complications. So every resident and medical student in the building wanted to be there which was chaotic, but also strangely really, really nice. I didn't know what I was having. So, you know, 30 people all yelled, it's a girl, which was a really wonderful moment because it, it felt a little normal. Um, and, and so when she came out, she, you know, she was as you would expect, you know, lifeless and gray. And, and they were working pretty hard on her. Um, to get her to to breathe. Um, And it seemed like an eternity. But, you know, interestingly enough, after um, some stimulation, she she didn't have the strength to cry, but she squeaked. And I could actually hear the squeak. I mean, it sounded like a a tiny little cat. It was like, Um, you know, they they helped her breathe. Um, they let me see her for about five seconds, and I got to kiss her forehead, which was great. And I was really surprised at how warm she was. I, I don't know what I was expecting at that point, but she was tiny. I mean, when I would put my thumb on her forehead, and I have really small hands, it covered her entire head. So I don't know, two inches was was the diameter of her head. Remember, Shannon's baby is eight weeks early, and she's even smaller than babies that early usually are. Right away, um, they can tell she does not have Down syndrome. Her eyes are not fused shut, as Shannon had been warned they might be. But there are all kinds of other concerns with a tiny baby that comes this early. You know, there's brain bleeds, blindness, um, destruction of the bowel, So while Shannon's baby looks fine, her ultimate survival is very much up in the air. The thing this baby needs right now is colostrum. They literally called it liquid gold in the NICU. So for those of you who don't know what colostrum is, it's the stuff that comes out of your breasts before the actual milk comes in. You know, breast milk has these like magical healing powers for for all kinds of things um, that can come up with a baby. And colostrum is like super breast milk. It's full of antibodies that help prevent babies from getting viruses and infections. It's usually clear or or sort of a gold color. 
Shannon's baby desperately needs this stuff, and, and it's something that only Shannon can make. They brought in this breast pump that had like a Ferrari engine in it. It was really crazy. It was on a cart, and um, you know, and, and the lactation consultant that brought it in said, "Your body is not um, quite where it should have been as far as you know milk production and." Um, you know, when, when you have a very emergency section, I think your body's not quite sure what the heck's going on. So she said, see what you can do. And I actually was able to produce a couple drops of colostrum. Most moms make colostrum for only a few days before their milk turns milky. But Shannon made colostrum for about two weeks. She's not producing much, but it's just enough to keep up with her tiny daughter's appetite. Shannon stays in the hospital for four days, and, and on the third day, she gets to hold the baby for a few minutes, and she names her Francesca. She'd been thinking of going with Lily, but now that name sounded too fragile. Once Shannon left the hospital, she'd pump the colostrum and bring it to the NICU so the nurses could feed it to Francesca through her feeding tube. Things are going so well, in fact, that Shannon starts to think about breastfeeding, like actual breastfeeding, like taking Francesca out of her incubator and feeding her herself. While she was pregnant and, and all the things were kind of going wrong with her pregnancy, Shannon was sort of on the fence about breastfeeding. If it works, great, she thought. If not, no big deal. But given our situation, I became crazed with breastfeeding. Shannon feels like breastfeeding is the only thing she can do for Francesca that the doctors and nurses can't. So when Francesca is three weeks old, Shannon appeals to a doctor in the NICU, a woman with a five-month-old baby at home. Shannon asks her, can't we just give breastfeeding a try? And the doctor says, sure, why not? But all the other doctors in the NICU see it differently. A baby that small can't latch. They said, it's just a waste of time. So they called the lactation consultant in. She said, I I've never seen a baby this tiny actually do it, but there's no reason why we can't at least get her in a position and get her used to at least lying that way. And so um, we did, and she latched on like a champ. Like right away? Right away. Yep. It, it was like nothing. No problem at all. This is remarkable because most preemies that small do not have the ability yet to suck or swallow. That's why they're fed through tubes first time I put her down there, she sucked, she swallowed, and the lactation consultant and, and the physician confirmed it with their stethoscope. They could hear, you know, liquid sort of dropping down into her belly. And so then at that point, not that your modesty isn't already out the window, but I had every medical student and resident, you know, in the OB rotation coming to see this tiny little thing, you know, nursing. So... From that point on, I nursed her, and we, I asked if we could remove the feeding tube, and, and we did, so that was great. Six weeks after Francesca's born, she gets to go home. So remember, Francesca came eight weeks early, which means that when she comes home, Shannon's actual due date is still two weeks away. So Shannon wakes up on her due date, June 25th. It's feeling bittersweet because she's imagining that what should have been happening this day was excitement, contractions, rushing to the hospital, when in reality, what she's got is a baby at home on a heart monitor. But at least she's got the nursing down. 
So I woke up in the morning and I could tell um, that my breasts didn't feel the same way that they had. I couldn't really say what it was. I think they were just softer and, and I didn't have that sort of let downy feeling that I used to get. Um, I wasn't overly concerned because I had heard that sometimes that happens, you know, you fluctuate. Um, but, you know, when I nursed her, I, I could tell that she, she was getting a little frustrated. Um, she was kind of backing up um, and, and getting fussy. You know, she also had acid reflux. So it, was, it was hard to tell. Is she just uncomfortable? Um, but I looked in her mouth and I didn't see any residual milk, which I usually would see. So um, I, I decided to try and pump and see if, if I was able to get anything. Um, and I was not. Shannon calls a lactation consultant and tries a bunch of things, you know, breast massage, herbs, but she can't produce a drop. She knows it's time to switch to bottle feeding, but she doesn't want to give up the closeness that she got from nursing, so she winds up doing something called comfort nursing. That's when you keep nursing the baby for comfort, even though they're getting their actual food from a bottle. I had been in this sort of heated battle with my body. It's taken her on so many extreme ups and downs. You know, first her body seemed to be failing her by booting her daughter out so early. And then it became this like overachiever, producing colostrum and milk against all odds. It was a triumph. And then like a lot of overachievers, it burnt out by taking that milk away on the very day she thought her production would kick into high gear. Shannon's actually got a visual reminder of everything her body put her through right there on her stomach, her C-section scar. It's small, just like Francesca was, only one and a half inches long. She says she knows most women try to cover up their C-section scars, but Shannon kind of likes it. It's this proof that her body might have been all over the place, but her body did not have the final say. There was another person involved here, Francesca, and she made the incredible decision to come out of Shannon's body when the time was right, to nurse when the opportunity presented itself, and to stay alive when that opportunity was taken away. You know, sometimes we have this little joke between us. Sometimes I'll say, I just wish I had a daughter exactly like you. And she says, you do, Mommy. You have me. And she laughs. Um, and I just, I really do try to tell her every day, how grateful I am that she's here. And I don't think she fully understands why that's so important to me, but she gets it. On some level, she really does. Because her face lights up. I can see it. Francesca is now a very healthy four years old, or four and three quarters, as she likes to say. She was slow to walk and to cut her first teeth. Other than that, there have been no residual effects of her premature birth. If you want to connect with other moms about premature birth or breastfeeding or even infertility, join our new closed group on Facebook, Longest Shortest Time Mamas. There's a link to it on our website, longestshortesttime.com. I started the group a couple of weeks ago and have been just blown away by how deep the conversations have been already and how supportive the community around this show has been. 
Thanks today to Alex Bloomberg for editing the show. Our theme music is by the Batteries Duo. Today's episode is brought to you with support by Earth's Best. Breast milk is, of course, the first choice for infant's growth and development, but if and when you choose formula, you can feel good knowing there's an organic choice, Earth's Best. Earth's Best formulas are patterned after breast milk and are nutritionally complete for the first 12 months of life. They're available in dairy, soy, and sensitivity. You can find Earth's Best formulas, plus everything else you need for bottle feeding, bottles, bottle warmers, bottle brushes, at another one of our sponsors, diapers.com. Get 20% off your first order at diapers.com or any of their other sites with the code LONGEST20. That's LONGEST20. I'm Hillary Frank. Back with a new episode in two weeks at 3 a.m. In the meantime, if you have a story about a surprising struggle in early parenthood that you'd like me to consider for this podcast, go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated it. this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.